Welcome to the People Analytics and Future Work Podcast with Al Adamson. Hi, this is Al Adamson, founder and executive director of the Talent Strategy Institute. And I'm here today with Rob Cross of the Connected Commons and Babson University. Rob, you there? Yes, I'm here. Hey, Rob, thanks for joining me today. I'm super excited that you're here. Obviously, you've done great work in organizational network analysis or relationship analytics for a long time. And you have this theme that I'm very passionate about uh, that you focused on recently, a collaborative overload. Can you just introduce yourself to our listeners and uh, just a little bit about the nature of your work? Sure, that sounds great. Yeah, and thank you for having me here and, and being willing to think about these ideas with me. Um, I am uh, Rob Cross. I've been focused on the network ideas for about a 20-year period now. I originally got interested in them when I was helping to direct a research group at IBM and um, was focused very heavily on database design and things like that at the time. And yet every time I would actually go out and ask people how they use technology to solve their problems, most people said they never used it. <laughs> they never <laughs> jumped on the database. They uh, had a much greater tendency to reach out to other people to get ideas, expertise, resources, decisions. And so that really started me on a trajectory that's lasted for 20 years, worked with over 300 organizations uh, around this ability to see and assess collaboration in groups that you care about inside organizations. And that may be, you know, say the top 200. Uh, people in an organization, maybe 500 uh, people laterally that are focused on a core process or a, a key new product development initiative, or maybe entire firms where we're mapping 40, 50,000 people by virtue of um, including a network question or two with the engagement survey. But the core of what we do and what I do is um, very focused on being able to make that collaborative fabric of an organization visible. And then, you know, being able to make conscious decisions around uh, talent, leadership, organizational design, uh, change processes, things like that as a product of understanding uh, the network on more of a data-centric way than just kind of guessing at it or relying on intuition. Got it. And ONA, if I might just use the acronym, uh, has entered into this people analytics uh, realm for some organizations and others. It's uh, been at at a higher level. The key question that I have for you is why ONA over other priorities. Uh, there's so much that can be done analytically. There's so much that can be done as a as a research study to better understand dynamics within an organization. But wh- why is ONA a uniquely valuable way to go about it? Sure, I think it's a great question. The, the you know for me the biggest thing that's happening right now. Remember, I've been at this 20 years. And I've seen, I've been very busy for 20 years with uh, organizations, but I, I think the groundswell that's emerging right now is just around this core recognition that the collaborative intensity of work has exploded and there's nobody paying attention to it. So yeah. if you ask any leader uh, in an organization, you know, what percent of their time do they spend cumulatively uh, on these three activities, time on the phone, time on email, or time in meetings, virtual or face-to-face, you know, the collective reality is a grasp, you know, gasp and a groan and, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, shut for the amount of time that goes in those sets of activities. Um, even in the most transactional work, we've seen that amount go up 50% or more for most kinds of people over the past eight to 10 years in our databases. And so what we've seen, you know, is this, this collaborative intensity of work explode as a product of matrix-based designs, globalization, uh, social you know, media kinds of tools and applications, email usage, interdependence of work, 
I mean, all these different forces driving uh, greater intensity of collaboration uh, and, and time demands, yet there's nobody paying attention to it. Right. No, you know, you have talent officers that are very focused on how do we, you know, fill uh, workforce plans and things like that, but you have no chief collaboration officers or yep. chief collaborative overload um, trying to, to see it and think about it. So if um, I, and so I think that's that most people resonate with deeply is that this is, you know, um, a new way that work is getting done. These networks are not just an abstract idea or a nicety. It's fundamentally how things are happening. And if we don't get a better grasp on that um, in terms of how we're managing talent, how we're, uh, you know, allocating resources, then we're, we're in trouble. So that's my sense of it anyway. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And I, I couldn't agree more. There's so much energy around skill-based development and crafting work according to skills, uh, but there's been less energy around understanding the capacity of individuals. So a lot of emphasis on capability, less on capacity. And if I hear you right, you're talking to that individual capacity, group, team, or organizational capacity and understanding that and trying to optimize uh, better so people don't feel like they failed at the end of the day and teams and, and groups can actually get work done and get it done well. Is that a fair way to play it back? Yeah, yeah, I think it's a great overlay on things like that. And so to give you a couple of quick examples, um, what we can expect generally when we do the network analysis is about three to five percent of the people to account for 20 to 35 percent of the value-added collaborations. So people that others turn to for expertise or to help cross-sell in certain ways or to get a, uh, you know, a patent approved, whatever it may be. You know, very small set of people, three to five percent account for a significant proportion of the value-added collaborations, usually 20 to 35 percent of the network. Yet if we compare our list of you know, who is in these enabling roles against the company's lists of who's in the top talent programs or getting the biggest bonuses or whatever the markers are of success, um, you typically find less than a 50% overlap between the two. And so as a, as a lens, it's a helpful way to say where are our processes missing key talent or enablers uh, in the organization. Um, an alternative you know, angle on the skill side is that a lot of times we'll um, set the assessments up in a way that says, you know, who, who, who do you turn to for core capabilities, you know, and define it by a taxonomy in that organization. And again, what you find when you overlay the network ideas is, as you may have hired, say, 10 people for skill A and think from a human capital planning standpoint, you're in great shape, right? That's what your models are showing you need. But you overlay the network data on it and you find if those 10 people Two of them have gotten legitimated in the network. They're the core experts that everybody turns to and relies on. And so you're really susceptible to those two, right? Either slowing things down because they're overwhelmed or if they get burned out and leave, um, you know, you have big gaps in the network and you're underutilizing maybe four of those people that you didn't onboard well or you didn't, um, you know, uh, rotate in ways that help them build a, a vibrant network that others turned into. So as a lens, it just helps to reveal the nature of work and how it's shifting and provide a little bit of a different traction point on a whole slew of um, talent-based decisions that people are making. Yeah. And you're talking about talent-based decisions and you know, that narrative that you just described obviously is uniquely insightful and comes through the work that you do and the, and the nature of ONA. Uh, 
there is there a value proposition in it for the individuals themselves uh, at the end of the day? Are they going to be able to better understand and manage their capacity? Right. Yeah. I, so I fundamentally believe that's one of the unique benefits of uh, either doing a full network analysis or um, we have developed through the Connected Commons a whole set of personal network uh, analytic tools that people can come in and, and apply without having done a, a full O&A. So let me, let me hit on both levels if I can. One is uh, with a full network analysis as opposed to say an engagement survey or cultural assessment, there really is unique value to the individuals, to knowing how they're connected. And, and so you're able to provide feedback to each person uh, in the assessment, not that reveals any private information. So I don't see that, you know, that Al doesn't turn to Rob or anything like that um, in there, but we can create these sideways bar charts that enable people to say, okay, my network is more or less insular than my peer groups. And, and I know that matters. It's the second biggest predictor of a high performer in all the work we've done is that they create structurally diverse networks, early stage problem solving. And so you can, you can do things that give people feedback and help them think about, um, you know, what specifically should they be doing in the coming six months, given different projects or clients or initiatives they have going uh, to either buy time back to, to streamline their connectivity uh, or to invest in certain kinds of relationships that are, are statistically uh, always associated with high performance. Um, we've taken that basic idea and then uh, also one of the big studies we did last year was looking across 20 years of work and seeing in all these organizations where we've mapped the networks and then gotten separate performance data. So it may be, you know, HR measures of performance, it may be revenue-based measures, patent production, whatever we could get our hands on across uh, a lot of different data sets. Um, we then reanalyzed that and said, okay, what's unique about high performers? If we look at those people that get and stay in the upwardly mobile category of these organizations, what's unique about their networks? And then what are the derailers they seem to avoid, the career derailers or traps that, that snare people? Um, and it's too much to go into in, in, you know, one specific setting, but there are a lot of very specific uh, network implications. And it's not a big network that predicts a high performer, but a structurally diverse one, early stage problem solving. Uh, it's being an energizer, somebody that creates pull in networks where things flow to that person uh, over time. And so by virtue of being able to kind of really tie that to performance and more recently to measures of resilience and well-being, you're able to go back in at the personal level and say, um, here are some things that you as an individual need to think about behaviorally, uh, ways that you're working in the network that can replicate what the high performers do uh, or kinds of connections that are more likely to promote um, success. You know, when you think of successes, uh, are you in that upwardly mobile category and are you resilient or happy or sustainable over time? Yeah. I, I love what you're saying. And is it, worth drawing a distinction between high performers and key talent? Uh, and the nature of the question is this, is if an organization has a methodology by which to identify high performers, in the work that you're describing, it might be the case that, hey, someone not in that high performance pool or high potential pool might in fact be a key member of, of the organization. So are you working to potentially even redefine what uh, critical talent or key talent is uh, and or high performers? Right. I think that's, you know, one of the, uh, of the more sophisticated users, let me say it that way, of the ideas, that's definitely where they're 
at with it. You know, is there, as I said, uh, you know, three to five percent of the people account for twenty to thirty-five percent of the value-added collaborations. Yet traditional systems miss about fifty percent of those people um, in in networks in different ways. And so that has really, for many, been a very different implication of thinking about what does talent look like, not just in isolation in the book of business they produce, but understanding it in the context of the network and the way they're enabling others uh, to be successful. And so you you know all sorts of implications start to come out of that when you start factoring in the network. For example, we know that when a lot of categories of people get lured away to go to another job, like bankers, as an example, they're much less successful in the second role than they think because um, it's more than just their individual capability, right? It's the network that was enabling them in that first context uh, to be successful. So if you're a chief talent officer and you have, you know, these metrics at your disposal and understand that, this person is really important in supporting a lot of other initiatives that we're not really seeing or cross-selling or things like that. It gives you different um, leverage points to either talk with that individual about, do you really think you're going to replicate this network immediately and at numbers in the other place? Uh, or, you know, is this person in fact somebody we've been overlooking in ways that we should think about uh, acknowledging them in, in whatever way makes sense. It may be more formally, uh, or maybe informally, but at least you're aware of those people and um, who would have a very disruptive impact on the network if they did leave uh, over time. So uh, just to flip the question uh, a little bit uh, that I had in my head initially, and it's this, it's like, in people analytics uh, and even in HR initiatives in general, there's a lot of selling. Oh, we got, we have to do this. Uh, and here's the value proposition. As I'm listening to you, it's dawning on me that there's a real cost to organizations for not doing what you're describing. There's a lot of guessing. There's, you know, suboptimal pr processes. Uh, people could be disengaged. So is that how you're looking at it? Is that why there's so much energy around it that, yeah, hey, this is not a nice to have. This is essential to how we should be thinking and managing talent moving forward. Is, is that a fair assertion? Yeah. Now, of course, we always have to take things with a grain of salt in the sense that I'm the boy with the hammer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that's what I see first in, uh, in everything out there. And I, you know, it's, uh, I laugh with people. I say I'm a one trick pony, but it's a great pony <laughs> yeah. right now. Absolutely. The, um, but the idea is, you know, you go back to that point at the beginning of the discussion is, you know, 85% or more of people's time is spent in collaborative activities today. It's become intimately intertwined with the work itself. And so not factoring it in, you know, has big implications. And so what we've been really focused on as a group with the Connected Commons is to really isolate out different kinds of repeatable, you know, use cases or pain points. So as an example, um, first-line leaders are, you know, particularly in technical work, it's a major failure point in most places, and they're not doing a lot about building out those individuals' capabilities through leadership programs. Uh, they do when you get to the upper levels, but not, you know, there. And so we've invested a lot in these virtual mechanisms to help those individuals replicate the connectivity of high performers and drive results through their teams in unique ways, enterprise networks and, and other you know, points like that. And then you see that there's a dramatically you know, significant improvement in the success rate of those people right over time. Uh, same thing on the attrition front um, from a people analytics standpoint. We have done 
Um, last year, as an example, we did a series of big, big data sets where we we're looking at 40, 50,000 people and then marrying monthly attrition data uh, to it. Uh, regrettable losses, people that companies didn't want to lose. And, you know, what was very interesting there is a, a set of insights that emerged. One is the network variables were out predicting uh, the variables in the, in the predictive analytic models of most places. So they, they mattered more than things that, that pure human capital measures were capturing uh, in the predictive models, but that it was a very different network than people thought. Um, so on entry, for example, what mattered was not going out and building your brand and telling a lot of people what you know, but it was actually creating pull. So it wasn't reaching that mattered. It was being sought that mattered. Um, and you say, well, why does that matter? Well, it's a totally different skill set to go out and tell people, you know, what you've done and what your capabilities are, which half the time nobody wants to hear, right. no matter how you disguise it. Um, it's a different process we were finding with the vast integrators and people more likely to stay. They would go out and set up a lot of interviews, ask legitimate questions, slowly uh, shape what they knew to the incumbent's needs, generate energy in the interactions, give status, mimic body language, a set of more subtle things that, you know, the first two or three interviews may not work out, but maybe number four is the one that slingshots them into the project that, you know, starts to, to mark their career in that organization. So what we found in that, uh, and I won't go through all, all of the dimensions, but that there were very specific network activities that mattered at very specific points in people's tenure to decrease the odds of attrition. You know, and if you go into some places, you drop the attrition rate by 1%, 2%, it's, it's you know, 20, $30 million. So being able to tie that, um, this traditionally invisible fabric of an organization to real outcomes that you can influence, you know, through an onboarding process and then virtual mechanisms, say over the first 18 months, um, is, an, is a different way that we're trying to both make the, the network visible and actionable, but also translate it into action that can, can yield impact. Uh, super cool. And as you're sharing this, I'm thinking that, hey, this is about how work gets done. And that is the domain of not only HR, that's operations, it could be facilities, IT obviously has a role because they're supplying the tools. So at my, my point of question is, who is the ultimate uh, sponsor, decision maker, uh, consumer of the insight that you're talking about at an organizational level? Is there a governance body there? Is it all the above? What's your experience? You know, it, it, it depends. Over the years, it really has depended on a lot of what we're doing in our research programs, you know, so we've had uh, a consortium that have focused on CIOs and looking at IT and how it's embedded in business lines and how to speed uptake of technology. Uh, the current lens that we really have is on the um, ways that organizations optimize through talent with this lens. And so it's very much right now um, the CHRO, C head, Chief Talent Officer, Heads of Leadership, that are um, focusing on the way we're, we're pivoting the ideas right now. So we have three specific programs around organizational agility and how these ideas can help drive that without doing another restructuring uh, talent optimization. And so you can imagine, as I was describing earlier, uh, you know, the idea of attrition and engagement is one example, but diversity and inclusion is another where this lens is very powerful um, to think about things on onboarding, talent identification, succession planning, uh, just a range of ways that the ideas feed into different talent processes. And then third is on this leadership idea. You know, how do you help leaders replicate the connectivity of the more successful people? 
Um, so for this, this focal point, there's a, a very heavy emphasis around the different uh, HR audiences there. So it's very heavily the people analytic roles because this gives them different um, metrics to bring into the, the models and the ways that they're looking at things. Um, very heavily at the leadership roles because they're building these ideas in uh, to different kinds of leadership initiatives and places. Um, when we do the full ONAs, uh, most often it's a it's a line leader, you know, of some some sort. It may be the head of innovation, uh, CEO. It can be that level of audience that comes in and says we need to streamline decision making, you know, restructure, do a merger integration process more effectively. Various you know big items like that, but invariably um, the HR role is always right there too, because <laughs> yep. all the the implications of the network analysis tend to be human. You know, it, it's very, very rare that we go through one of these assessments and the conclusion is we need a new technology. It's almost always that we need to revise how we're, you know, staffing as an example, or doing rotation programs to bridge silos more effectively, or, you know, engaging in some activities that de-layer overwhelmed people in ways that are invisibly hurting us. Yep. Um, so. Yeah. Uh, there's a question that I, I have to ask around the future of work, and I don't mean to say it uh, cliche. Uh, I mean to say it with much intention, uh, because b most every organization of yeah, a thousand or more, uh, particularly if they're global, uh, has a business transformation initiative or digital transformation initiative, and embedded within that uh, is data and new relationships, new types of relationships. So uh, you know, I think of uh, one client that is working with uh, startups and early stage companies to augment their internal innovation and of course the liquid workforce or gig economy so you have people outside the organization you know doing work there's a lot of things that are being automated and obviously ai is coming into the uh organization and actually doing work and that affects the employee experience that affects the nature of work that affects relationships so my question in two plus years time and might even be this coming year where would ona best be situated does it have a role to play in effectively designing how the organization is structured and how it's going to function moving forward yeah, I, I think there's a couple of possibilities, you know, that we'll see evolving. Um, one is in terms of the, the structure, what I'm finding effective under this rubric of agility and creating more nimble organizations is, is I can't tell you the number of times I've been brought in and, and the, the only lever that people have in their mind is to do a formal restructuring mm -hmm. and to fix problems, things yep. that aren't working. And, um, you know, especially if it's a, if it's a double matrix and sometimes we see triple matrices that phenomenally overload different points in the networks that are hurting performance in different ways. And of course, we all know that, you know, the cost of transitions in those restructurings is phenomenal too. Yep. So one angle we've been finding working very well for some of the members is to kind of stick with the structure you have. <laughs> And, and then use the network analytics to see very precisely where are the ineffective points that are occurring from this formal structure. Because the new structure is, is going to be costly to implement, and it's just going to reveal other susceptibilities right. down the road. I've watched this for 20 years. And, but if you can use the network ideas to go inside there and say, okay, really it's scale gains that we're not getting. 
Um, and what that means is very targeted capabilities that should be connected across geographies and functions for us to truly get, you know, best practice utilization greater to get efficiency gains greater um, or it's innovation potential we're not realizing. And what that means is that they're very targeted points again that we should be integrating across capabilities or integrating towards key accounts that the network lens again can really provide targeted actions on versus um, you know again a massive a massive restructuring and to your point earlier kind of shooting blindly uh, to some degree and thinking about who should go where and uh, that sort of thing. So I think that's one potential. You know, as the as the analytics become more and more uh, robust and taken up, it it provides the ability to really go in and pivot in different ways, and try to accomplish what you're what you're really looking for, um, versus um, assuming that a, a revised formal structure will. The the second thing, and I've got to say this, and I, I apologize if I'm if I'm going on too long here, but no. the second thing that is really important to me that I hope people, if nothing else, walk away you know from the the podcast with is that talent is nowhere near as atomistic as people that are advocating the gig economy or things like that project. You know, what we tend to see is that, you know, I've already mentioned one idea already, that people are often not as successful in the context when they move from the old um, if, if they're not taking their network with them. Uh, the other thing we'll often see is it can take people three to five years to come into a company and replicate the connectivity uh, of the high performers in that case. And so we've, we've, I believe that what needs to get factored in as people really um, start thinking about talent mobility is some uh, understanding of a network that makes those people successful as well. And the time it takes to cultivate legitimacy, trust, credibility, all these things that we kind of intuitively know matter in a new context. Um, and and I, I think that's going to be a really important um, aspect of for these things to be more and more successful over time is thinking about that network-based component as well of people's um, people's success versus purely isolated skills and skill sets. Yeah. The idea that your relationships matter, internal relationship equity, and that's not only internal, that could be external with partners, with, with customers as well. So is that beyond the scope of what you're looking at right now? Or is it merely, I shouldn't say merely because it's hugely valuable, but uh, you're focused in internal relationships? Yeah, no, we'll, it depends on the setup and the assessment of what we're looking at, but we'll definitely... Um, if we're profiling high performers, as an example, sales, Salesforce, high performing salespeople with the idea of, gosh, if you replicate the top 20% performers down to the next 20%, what does that do revenue wise? Then that's always going to be external too, you know, and focus in on how are they engaging um, uh, both externally and internally, even to the point of thinking about educational systems and some of the more nuanced conversations I've been in is I believe the universities, you know, fairly soon are gonna to have to be thinking about as they produce people, ways of tracking both the capabilities developed and the networks that are created through the process. Um, and so I, I honestly believe, you know, this may be 10 years out, it may be 15 years out, but the contextualization of the skills and capabilities in the, the networks and making that more visible and actionable, whether it's inside or outside, you know, a given organization is going to be um, a, a big deal going forward. Yeah, agreed. And so as we start to wrap up, I got a couple more questions. And 
I don't want to rush through it, but because it's an important topic, is this work that you've done on energy and purpose. And we've touched on energy uh, earlier, but yeah, aligning with an individual's uh, purpose. Can you speak to what you've been doing there? Yeah, yeah. It's it's one of the areas that I think is going to be, um, you know, continuing to be a big deal for the Commons members. So in addition to mapping information flow in groups, in some places we've gone out and mapped this basic idea of uh, who are the people that when you interact with them, you walk away feeling like what you're doing matters, has impact and matters. Um, and we find that it's hugely predictive of retention in places. So uh, by years two to three, people need to have at least one, if not two or three people around them that give them a sense of purpose that their work matters. Um, and that can come from inside or outside the organization. But for people to persist and stay, um, they, they need to have that. What's been interesting to me, and I, I can't mention the name of the, the organizations on this, but last year I did a big study uh, across 20 organizations. I interviewed 160 successful leaders, 80 men, 80 women, uh, eight, eight from each organization. And, um, and we were very focused on where have networks enabled you to thrive in your work, right? You've either outperformed uh, or, and or, you know, do things that have you showing up fully present. And, you know, what were the aspects of the networks that really mattered there? And universally, you heard the people that were doing better. So they were both high performers and they were sustainable uh, over time. They would engage with their network in ways that created a sense of purpose. So they would establish the why in the work before the what and the how. They would look to co-create early and create inclusion with others. Um, they just engaged differently in the work. Uh, in a way that generated a, a greater you know, sense of purpose. In fact, one of the, the companies in the study, very well-known organization, uh, makes a very successful, but makes a pretty mundane product at the end of the day. And uh, I was amazed in that place and that everybody there that I interviewed from top to bottom, they felt that organization was changing the world, right? And at the end of the day, it was a mundane product. I can't mention it or everybody would know. And yet others in my group were literally curing cancer. Or, 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 you know, building infrastructure for the, the poor in destitute countries and could not be more upset, you know, that the organization didn't take them more seriously, or that their projects weren't the most important or you go down the list. And, and so it really hit me as I went through this process, very rich set of interviews with people that purpose is um, it's not just about the work. People say, oh, my work is, is meaningful or has purpose. Yet what I was seeing over and over again is it's really about the network that gets built around the work. Like mm -hmm. you can get enthused and find to make more mundane things, very purpose filled. And you can also find ways to make stuff that's truly noble, you know, just bitter and meaningless. <laughs> right. Um, if you let works happen in, in certain ways. So I think from a, a leadership standpoint, you know, when we've mapped these ideas of purpose, it's very common to see the top quartile of leaders, you know, they energize a large number of people or they create purpose for a large number of people. Um, and the bottom quartile may not even energize or create purpose for one person. I mean, they're really bad at it. Yeah. Uh, and so I think that's yeah, an angle to, to kind of think about. It is very tractable. You know, it's not an abstract idea and you can teach people to start with the why, to co-create, to uh, do things like that, you know, and, and build contexts that are more purpose driven. Yeah, what I'm hearing is that you have a very humane, real 
approach and it's resonating with not only the clients that you're working with, but those that you're serving within those organizations. In other words, it, it, it makes sense. And you're bringing what was formerly kind of unmeasured. Um, you're making it measured. You're bringing some insights into it. And thus people are able to take appropriate action. Uh, is that a, again, a fair summary? I think so. I think so. Yeah. That's been the goal as always. In the, in this work and myself co-creating with the great companies that are part of the commons is really, you know, not just going out and generating academic insights, but generating things in a way that reflects how people are experiencing organizations and can be uh, translated into action. And so it's been a great, you know, partnership and collaboration with a lot of great places that are helping to, to do that. <laughs> Well, that's a segue into my final question. How can people learn more about the Commons and get in touch with you? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the, the Commons is a um, it, it website out there is Connected Commons, and it's easy to just go into and look at. We're doing a, a revision uh, right now, so uh, over the course of the next week or two, it'll be up and down as we situate a, a set of the assets that we built this past year for the members. But um, but you'll get a sense of the work there and those core themes around uh, driving innovation and agility, talent optimization and leadership. Uh, and then, of course, you know, I'm always interested in finding ways to engage people with the ideas at whatever level, whether it is a research project or just joining in a webinar uh, that we're up to. So um, always feel free to reach out and drop me an email as well. And I would love to talk. Well, Rob, I could talk to you all day. Thanks for the work that you've done. Thanks for sharing today and uh, wish you a great holiday. All right, you too. Thank you all very much. Thanks for joining the People Analytics and Future of Work podcast with Al Adamson. To find other podcasts, videos, upcoming events, and to join the Global People Analytics Network, please visit us at globalpeopleanalytics.net.